Friends, 20 years ago, if you would have said you could spend $7 for a cup of coffee, I would have said I can get 14 of those at McDonald's, okay? And they're just as good, and man, will I be high. But we have found out that uh, uh, an artisan cup of coffee uh, is very good for socializing. And, and so we sit over it and we talk about how it tastes or things like that. Uh, and sometimes if I'm alone, uh, I understand that I would like an artisan cup of coffee. And so I go in and I, uh, I order a decaf four-pump vanilla latte breve extra hot dirty upside down ristretto only low foam and no, cre- and no whip. And, and I look at that and it's exactly how I want it. And it's, and it's a wonderful thing. I really enjoy that. And how do you treat yourself? It may be with a fine craft beer rather than Paps Blue Ribbon. It may be with a better wine than something in a box. In a bottle, I hear they come now. Uh, maybe you go to your favorite restaurant rather than going to Denny's or a cheaper one. And you treat yourself. Some of you have collections, jewelry collections like Charms on a bracelet that you try to get. Golf clubs uh, that you collect. Ski equipment. Uh, maybe you are one who collects pairs of shoes. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> pairs of shoes. We had a president of, or yeah, a president or a wife of a president of the Philippines named Imelda Marcos, who had thousands of pairs of shoes. And you say, well, look, these don't break the bank. And you like them. Now, Here is another maybe way that you treat yourself. (laughs) Chances are you have not treated yourselves with a new toy boat that comes with its own helicopter and pad, but maybe you'd like to. Chances are you treat yourself with something in between a luxury lot, uh, yacht and, and a cup of coffee. And that would be like most of us. Treating ourselves is one thing. I am told that if you like that frou-frou cup of coffee, that when you drink it, some, something is released in your brain, a, a group of hormones called endorphins. And it, they touch your pleasure center. And, and they have the same effect, ready for this, as opiates. And, and, and they do wonderful things for you so you can relax and enjoy the satisfaction. That's what it's like to treat yourself to one thing. But how about satisfying the deepest longings of our hearts? Perhaps things so deep you don't always recognize them. Perhaps you can't even describe them. But you know that they're there. And you know that they are not yet quenched. That is where we move from the nice pleasures of this earth to being as God's creation's understanding that he has put in us a soul that he wants to touch the deepest needs of our soul. Where we move from the wonderful pleasures of this earth to the one in whose image we have been made. And we understand that we uh, are moving from where uh, uh, from where we are to something deeper with the God-man, Jesus, who fully knows us. He fully knows us. He knows the pleasures of this world and he enjoyed many of them. But he also understands the surpassing joys of eternity that many of us have not yet experienced. In our series called The Son of God, this morning we watched Jesus take a man out of his physical misery 
And it is very detailed how he does it. But in addition to take him out of his physical ministry, he also lifts him to a spiritual level that I think all of us deeply desire. So it's called the Son of God. We're looking at Jesus meeting our deepest longings. And we're reading in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, a record of the life of Jesus. And that record begins in verse 1 by saying, This Jesus is the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph and Mary, but the Son of God. And each section of this gospel that I invite you to read with me throughout the week describes in a little more depth what it means to be God in the flesh. So each week, because we're looking at God in the flesh, this Jesus whom we call Christ, we're doing Christology. We are studying who this Jesus is. We want to know him. But we understand that when God steps into the picture, that it affects every human around him, and that's called anthropology. In other words, what do humans act like? What is our nature? And when God steps in, understand it's no longer just on the horizontal, just on the earthly, just on the the secular level. And because of that, we understand that God also affects our psychology. He gets into our heads and begins to restore our souls in ways we could never do it on our own. So let's look at this incident in Mark chapter 2. And as I begin it, uh, it, it, the the subtitle is Jesus Heals a Paralytic. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. It starts with the big picture. At church, we like to know the big picture. Some people are always asking how many were in attendance, how much was given. We've seen a lot of protest demonstrations in the last several months. And the, the question is always, well, was it just hundreds or was it thousands or was it tens of thousands? Was it hundreds? How many were there? As Jesus returns to his home base... We understand that he probably comes with those first four disciples, two sets of brothers, Peter, who's still called Simon, and his brother Andrew, and uh, James and John, uh, uh, two other two other brothers. And so as he comes, it's not so much, uh, uh, you know, how many are there, but we understand that it is a full situation. He is at his home base and probably in the home of one of these disciples. And most likely Peter and Andrew's home. And so he had been in the smaller villages uh, outside of Capernaum. Now as he comes home, we understand that the people can't wait to see him again. There are big numbers. The house is full of people. And outside at every window and every doorway, there are people trying to look inside. They want to hear what Jesus has to say because that is what he's doing. He is teaching them. And his listeners want to hear. But as he is teaching them these great truths of God, he also is looking into the heart conditions of his listeners, both as groups, but also as individual hearts. God knows our hearts. He knows what's going on inside of us. And he's aware that this is a very diverse group that has gathered. Yeah, they all may be from nearby Capernaum or, 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 or outlying districts, but, but they're also very diverse. There are many subgroups here. 
So let's list them before we get to the rest of the passage so that you will know when we get to them what we're doing. Here's the list. First of all, his disciples, as we said, in that home of Peter and Andrew, probably. Uh, and he has two others. So so they're there. The crowd, it's huge because Jesus is a celebrity now. They have heard him teach. They have watched him heal. They have also watched him exercise demons. No one's ever done that before in Capernaum. They're also what I call FOPs. FOP means a friend of a paralytic that we'll meet in just a minute. Uh, And they are determined that Jesus uh, both see and do something with this cripple. So they are taking this cripple to that home so that the cripple and Jesus will be together. Then there is the paralytic himself. He's on a pallet or a stretcher, unable to get to Jesus by himself. And finally, this group first emerges right here in this passage, the skeptics. And most of the skeptics are different then than they are today. The skeptics then are experts in what we call religious law and the laws of the Jews, primarily written by Moses in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This group is now visible almost everywhere Jesus speaks from now on. Everywhere he teaches, you will see them asking questions, making conclusions. These are the skeptics. So you look at this, the, all these subgroups in the large number, and you go, man, what a crowd. Understand also Jesus sees inside each of these groups. He knows the group think. He knows the individual hearts. And as he gets into their heads, he will elicit responses uh, that, um, uh, well, that's just what it means. When the God-man, when you mix divinity with uh, humanity, they're going to be shaken up. So of this group, we find a determined, what I might call quartet, but there's more than just four. So I begin at verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four. So there's four carrying the paralyzed man, but it looks like the crowd is, that group that is helping him is bigger. And uh, since they could not get to him, or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat of the paralyzed man was lying on. What a picture. Do you get what's going on? Of all the needs, there are those there with intellectual needs. There are those there with spiritual needs. But this paralyzed man has a physical need. I can't walk. And he has friends. And his friends want to make sure that if Jesus is healing, and, he, and, and, and they've heard that he does, that this, their friend, will get to Jesus, and maybe Jesus will heal them, him. So the crowd is great, and as they try to get in carrying him, uh, they're trying to push people aside pleasantly, but you know what? They won't move. And they're probably saying, hey, I was here first. Why should I move for you? I have needs too. Uh, why don't you take a number, or why don't you wait till the next time Jesus comes? So they take an outside stairway, or a ladder even, and they go up to the roof, which was flat. And the roof has like three layers on it. The very top roof is is compact dirt. And you dig out the compact dirt. 
And underneath that are, is a layer of thatch. And you lift out the thatch, and under that are tiles probably connected to the rafters. And you lift that out, and lo and behold, you got a hole in the roof. They begin to lower their friend after the third layer is removed. And imagine as he goes through the hole, Jesus is speaking, and there is this noise nearby and dust and, and as this man is lowered. And Jesus was there to teach, but now Jesus transitions from teaching principles and teaching stories to teaching through an object lesson, and this man is the object lesson. And here is the question for the age, because apparently Jesus stops his teaching. He stops speaking to the crowd. So in front of Jesus is this man in a stretcher, and he is attached, or his stretcher is attached to ropes. Now follow the ropes up with me, will you, to the ceiling? Follow those ropes, and at the top of those ropes you will see at least four men, one looking from each corner of the hole, and, and, and Jesus is looking at them. You follow those ropes, and you see that this paralyzed man got here because of friends like that. Now you follow those ropes up, and now you begin to follow those ropes down, and you see this paralyzed man at the bottom. And not only is he paralyzed, he's probably terrified. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I don't like being the center of attention. (laughs) Well, maybe I do. Okay. But uh, so... There he is down. And as Jesus looks up, it says he's impressed by the faith, all the hard work of the faith of those men who brought him. But then if you look down those ropes and you look into the, you know, below the hole, you will see that there is that man. Nothing could stop them from bringing their friend And so down to the bottom of those ropes is that paralyzed man. And Jesus looks at that paralyzed man after looking at his friends at the top of the ropes. And he says this, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, just stop right there. Nobody came to have their sins forgiven. Nobody's there for that purpose. Son, your sins are forgiven. When our children were growing up, we read to each of them, I think, a book called Would You Rather? And Would You Rather has a, a uh, it's a picture book of giving some fantastic choices to children that you would never face in the real world. So in that picture book, there are, you know, it just stimulates a kid's imagination because it would say, would you rather uh, eat a banana with a monkey in a jungle? And my kids had never seen a jungle, so there was a picture of it, you know, a cartoon-like picture. Well, here is one of them. Um, and it said, would you rather, as it is stimulating both the imagination and the values of kids, it, it, the example is, would you rather an eagle stole your dinner, a hippo slept in your bed, or you played tug of war with an elephant? I wouldn't do, want to do either. I, I wouldn't want to do three, but you're supposed to choose one. And I'm sorry, no hippo is going to be in my bed. Okay. So... You know, it's a fun experience. Now, let's do the adult version, shall we? Son, your sins are forgiven. Let's do the adult version, would you rather. Would you rather be crippled but in the arms of God for eternity? Or eternally separated from God 
but walking normally? Would you rather? What would be your preference? You'd say, no, I'd like the best of both. You don't always get that. What would you rather? As Jesus looks at this man who came to be healed, he tells him his sins are forgiven. It's an object lesson. And with that object lesson, the skeptics are listening to every word. And right now at this moment, when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, their presuppositions are exploding in anger in their minds. Let's read what happens in verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. Well, they didn't realize Jesus could think for them. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. The teachers of the religious law are almost like lawyers today. They know what the law says. They know how it's currently interpreted. They know that the way to forgive your sins is to pay for them. You can do it through a loaf of bread, you can do it through an offering of flour, you can do it through an offering of pigeons or a a sheep or a goat. Uh, And more than that, if you have offended anybody financially, you pay 120% back to the one you offended. That's how forgiveness occurs because you earn it through a justice system. That is the way it has always has been since the days of Moses. That is the way it is now in Israel. And they are saying that is the way it will be forever. But then Jesus comes to town. And he affirms the law of Moses. But he shows them through the Old Testament as well as through his person. How God deals with sins. Now, he tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And he's saying, your sins are forgiven, not because of the offering you've made for your sins, but your sins are forgiven because I said so. And in that very moment, he is claiming, I have the authority to forgive sins. And he claims it at this moment. He has not done it to this time. You realize why this has to be one of the first passages in Mark? Because he's dealing with these soul issues, these matters of our heart. So now he asks that question, which is easier? And let's say he's, can I deputize you this morning? Everybody raise your right hand. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, when we're dealing with the, um, with the uh, experts of the law, keep those hands up, come on. When you were dealing with the experts of the law, Uh, I deputize you to be Pharisees this morning. I would like you to start thinking like Pharisees. And I just want you to know, it's not that hard. (laughs) I do it normally. I can wake up in the morning and be Pharisaical. I can go to bed being Pharisee. I can buy a Big Mac and be a Pharisee, okay? So... Uh, I want you to just, if you can, as much as you can, be a deputy, a junior deputy Pharisee. And you understand that anytime we're looking at them, I want you to say, I'm not far from that. In fact, I, I may be exhibiting that right now. So 
He's speaking to the whole crowd, I think, as he asked this question. But understand it's going directly, or you might say indirectly, to these Pharisees. So here's the question. Which is easier to say? You are forgiven by God for your sins or stand up and walk now? Which is the easiest? Let's be honest. They're both pretty hard. If you buy into the secular worldview, you would say the hardest one was probably get up and walk. That would be the hardest to say because though we've learned a lot through physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, treatments like the, you know, one of the best in the world at Craig Hospital, we understand that instantaneous nerve repair is rare. Rare. Here's an example. The Christian writer Joni Erickson Tata has been approached hundreds of times and dozens of times has opened herself up for prayer for the healing because she's a quadriplegic. And so she's accepted this prayers and, and people came to her saying, God has called me to pray for you and heal you. She's still in a wheelchair. Still being used for the glory of God. Still probably has a, 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 a huge following because every time people see her, they, they are aware of what God has accomplished through her and not through her body. So if you're a secular person, you'd say, that would be the hardest one because I could claim your sins are forgiven. But I'd be claiming your sins are forgiven by me. So from paralysis to normal walking is rare. It's rare for the seculars, secular people. It's rare for the Christian. Now, the other one, when you say your sins are forgiven, which means forgiven by God, now that is something else. If you are secular, you see forgiveness as something that's horizontal. It occurs between people here on earth. I have forgiven you for what you've done to me. But if you believe that you were made by a creator and you are in that creator's image, then understand that we offend him. There are offenses against him which only can be forgiven by him. And most of the offenses you have towards other people include God. So when Jesus declares to the disabled man that your sins are forgiven, he is declaring that he has the authority. He's not just making... Uh, huge claims. I have the authority to forgive your sins. Well, since they're both very difficult, he wants to now let them know that this is about forgiving sins and I'm going to give you an object lesson to let you know I have that authority. So he says, but that you may know in verse 10 that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. We have the claim to forgive sins. We have a crowd of rivals we, that are calling Jesus a blasphemer. Uh, and here is Jesus who claims to be God with skin on. We have at least four roof-ripping stretcher bearers up there looking down. And we have the huge audience that's breathless because Jesus has claimed to this man who cannot walk, now it is time to walk. Can you imagine the silence for just a second? Yes, you just experienced it. What's going to happen? I know you've read the end. I, I understand that, okay? 
But he says this to this huge audience and everybody is waiting for what's next. It's like he looks at his critics, which you all are deputies this morning. And he's telling each of them, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then his voice and his gaze changes to the paralyzed man. I tell you, get up, take up your mat, walk home. Verse 12, he got up. Let me put it another way. This disabled man gets up, he picks up, and he walks out of the room. The score is now Jesus 2, lawyer 0. Now, you don't get a participation award just because you were in the room, okay? This is mortal combat. The score is Jesus 2. It is not just a shutout. It is a no-hitter. Jesus is 2 because he understands that he has claimed both authority to, to heal uh, a, a nervous tissue, number 1, but he also has authority to forgive sins. It is Jesus 2, lawyer 0. Their faces are red. Their heads are low, their mouths are shut, and there is a large crowd with many of the paralyzed men's friends among them singing, Our God is an awesome God. And then they say this, We have never seen anything like this. What a moment. you got to admit, wow, do you get the drama of that? Jesus was great in front of people. Man, it's just awesome what he's done. What about now? How does it affect our anthropology and our psychology? 2,000 years now later, the resurrected Jesus sits in the place of honor next to God the Father. And as we read this passage, we have to come come to a conclusion, though it occurred 2,000 years ago. What do we think of Jesus? This gospel is written to amaze us both into trusting in Jesus as God's son and into following Jesus the rest of our lives. He forgives sins. The issue is, will you trust him to forgive your sins? Only he can do this because he has earned the right by dying on his cross. So first of all, because he's God, he has that innate authority to forgive sins. But on earth, he understand that he earned that right. He dies on a cross and he becomes our substitute. The punishment we should have had in the justice system for our sins is a punishment that he takes upon himself, separation from God. And have you ever seen anything like this? You know, from my vantage point, um, I've been through a a pretty, one of my toughest years uh, physically. And I have been uh, with uh, more doctors who know me by my first name than I would ever want to know again. And they've done a marvelous job. My doctors, my pharmacists, I thank them for being alive today. But in 1965, a group of praying Christian stretcher bearers mentioned my name every Sunday morning before church began together and their prayer was simple Lord if you can do miracles get Jim DeMola to church 
Now it'd be a class two or class three miracle. I'm not walking on water or doing anything like that. But they prayed for me continually. You might say that their prayers were lowering me into God's forgiveness of my sins. And one that occurred soon afterwards, there was a process going on inside of me where my secular friends are amazed. They said, Jim, what's happened to you? Have you got religion? My parents were blessed. It's about time you straighten up and fly right and treat us the way we should be treated. And my praying friends had the biggest smiles you've ever seen. Because it wasn't just me, but they had eight or ten people that they were praying for. Cheryl, Jill, Ron, uh, Noreen. They prayed with others every Sunday morning. And one by one, they saw these people have their sins forgiven. Our proper relationship with Jesus means that we begin by recognizing his identity as God's son. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our worship. And the one certain way to find forgiveness for our sins. Please, friends, don't try to buy your way through it. Receive it as a grace gift. Because you'll never be good enough. And you'll never have enough to buy your way through it. Where are you right now? Where are you? Are you one being prayed for? Or are you one praying for others? Chances are that one way or another, we're either in the, you know, on that mat with a paralytic, or we're at the top of the rope looking down asking that Jesus do something. Either way, friends, let's pray. Father, would you please continue as we read the Gospel of Mark to amaze us with the identity of Jesus of Nazareth and call him who Mark calls him in chapter 1, verse 1, your son. Worthy of our worship, and the one certain way to find forgiveness for our sins. Through his merits, not through ours. Father, we stop right now because we realize um, there are many of us who have walked in to this room this morning who are feeling guilty, and they have a soul need that only your forgiveness can bring to them. Sometimes our guilty feelings are not accurate, but usually our guilty feelings are there because we're guilty. We've offended others, broken our own standards, and realized that we are more separated from our Creator than we ever intended to be. May they seek you for the forgiveness of their sins as your son claimed he could do. And Father, we also want to pray for the sick. Even this morning before I walked into this room, I, were hear- I was hearing the words cancer, death, 
separation. It is a tough time. If it's not us individually, it's those that we love. Father, we are told and instructed to pray for the sick that you might lift them up. And we believe that you still are healing in many ways today. Thank you for medicine, but thank you for your almighty power too. And would you help us comfort the sick and pray that they be healed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.